Hello, this is Earl Fontanelle. You're listening to the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Jay Bregman, Emeritus Professor of History and Religious Studies at the University of Maine, and a man who knows a thing or two about the great Synesius of Cyrene. In fact, I can actually say you wrote the book on Synesius of Cyrene, because you did. Jay, thanks so much for coming to talk to us. Well, thanks for asking me. I'm looking forward to talking to you. So, can you introduce the basics about Synesius? Because his just the outlines of his life are pretty fascinating. He's a fascinating guy who lived in fascinating times. Okay, well, of course, he was born around 370. So, this is already after the uh, passing of Julian. And he was born in Cyrene in Libya which was, of course, an old Dora colony, and I guess the only Greek colony in Libya. And it had a few, uh, it founded a few other cities in the area, I guess. But he traced his family all the way back to around 630 B.C. Wow. The original founders of Cyrene, you know, Dora colonists, And uh, everything about him, as he told his story, is of a Hellene. Not just a Hellene, but like a a guy with a thousand-year Hellenic history just for his family that he's he's embedded in. Gibbon called it the longest pedigree in the history of mankind. Something like that. And everybody thought he was a Hellene period, and only became a Christian later. And of course, that's been challenged. But the evidence is not uh, that clear. There's a house in Cyrene, which may have been his family's. But even if that's true, I don't think Christianity meant much to him. And by the time he got to his college, so to speak, he went to Alexandria in his early 20s maybe 393, to study with Hypatia. And she was, of course, the famous teacher of mathematics and philosophy. And her father was a famous mathematician, Theon. And in those years, he studied with Hypatia. And all his letters reflect great respect for Hypatia and basically friendships that are Hellenic and Pythagorean. Even if he was a Christian, I don't think it's that relevant because he was converted to philosophy. Okay. And, uh, so talk, talk, about that, not, talk about that a little bit. What does that mean to be converted to philosophy? How do we know he's converted well, to philosophy? We can infer it. The thing is that A.D. Nock, who wrote the great work on conversion, Arthur Darby Nock, and was very much in the, in the mainstream of Christian scholarship, and maybe the greatest late antique scholar ever. You know, he saw Christianity as a religion of that you could convert to, basically opposed to paganism. But right. he did allow for exceptions. And one was, as he saw it, there was the conversion by opposition and contrast of people like Julian. But he also allowed for conversion to philosophy mm. from a 
often from one way of life to another, a dissolute way of life to a moral philosophical way of life. And he, he uh, notes the drunken youth who was converted by Socrates. Right. So conversion, I think conversion to philosophy is legitimate. And I think, especially in the era of Neoplatonism, which itself is a religion, really, that that whatever, you know, Synesius may have been a Hellene, but he would have been sort of a man of letters, or if he was nominally a Christian, which he never shows much knowledge of Christianity. Only a tiny bit later. But even so, I think it doesn't matter because I think he had a conversion experience under Hypatia. Right. Now, this all sounds probably quite familiar to our listeners who, after all, are well-versed in late Platonism and its development in late antiquity. But what might surprise them is that this guy becomes a Christian bishop. (laughs) He's not just any nominal Christian. He's the guy who's called on to be the leader of the local Christians in a town. Okay, well, after his sojourn in Alexandria, very late in the fourth century, uh, remember, he went to Alexandria to study. Then he was back in Cyrene. And there were political machinations there. But one thing that happened was he was sent to Constantinople to represent the city, which was an impoverished city, at court. And there, you know, for example, he he wrote a speech on kingship, which he probably presented to the emperor. He made connections in Constantinople, which was at the time under siege by the Goths. Now, the Goths by that time were Aryan heretic Christians, and Constantinople was Orthodox. And he made connections there with at least one faction. There were several factions, and there was a lot of factional strife, but also with some Christians. And at that point, there was probably common cause with getting rid of the barbarians. So he seems to have, at that point at least, and he he never openly attacked Christianity, and neither for that matter did Hypatia. Mm. She had Christian students, she even had Jewish students, as well as pagan. So he made those connections, and when he went back, uh, he was married by Theophilus, the patriarch of Alexandria. And he he married a Christian. Right. So he did have a Christian wedding. So by then, he was either a catechumen or a convert or whatever it was. He had a Christian marriage that was overseen by the um, patriarch. Presumably, he's... He has this marriage overseen by the top Christian official. Yeah, Theophilus. Because, Theophilus. because he himself is from a big, fa- prominent family, right? He's an aristocrat himself. Sinesis. Oh, yeah, Sinesius so, is a local aristocrat. So it's sure. like nowadays in England, if the Archbishop of Canterbury marries you, it's because you're, it's got nothing to do with your Christian belief or otherwise. It's because you're an aristocrat. And that's, you know, the you get him to marry you. Yeah. So he's a member of the club. We can say that anyway. Oh, certainly. And, you know, it was also helpful to the church to have someone like that. 
in a prominent position, and eventually he was offered the Episcopate of Ptolemaeus, which was a group of cities also in Libya, which he accepted by Theophilus. And uh, that's when he wrote his famous letter officially to his brother. And by that time, he had a family and a, a, uh, of his own. And he said, well, you know, he wanted to stay married and he really wouldn't be a very good bishop. He also said that he had some serious objections to Christian doctrine as it was understood then. And it's been pointed out that Theophilus accepted his letter, but shouldn't have. He this, said, is, this is wonderful because this shows us that Christianity, you know, so many of our sources for late antique Christianity tend to be people like church fathers who are writing theory, they're writing theology, they're writing about an idealized Christianity as it should be. And then we see the reality on the ground in the late antique Roman Empire, which is like, well, that's great, you know, St. Augustine or whatever. But in this situation, we need a bishop. This guy is very polished rhetor. He's a, he's a you know, class act. He's from North Africa. He's from the, one of our, our best families. And, you know, if he has a few quibbles about theological points... Like, I believe he, he finds a sticking point, the, the pre-existence of the soul, right? He's like, this idea that God just creates souls when he, humans are born, that's nonsense. Right, that's the kind of thing philosophers and high-powered theologians argued about. Right. Theophilus was an arch-politician, mm. not a great guy. <laughs> so, yeah, well, it's been pointed out that the uh, pre-existence of the soul was... Uh, a question for centuries, really. Mm, origin. And so is the eternity of the world. But I look at it as if you view Synesius' entire position, it comes down to being a Hellenic Neoplatonist first. The world can't be destroyed, uh, and it was not created. The soul pre-exists, and not as part of a, an earlier create a double creation. Right. Which, you know, I mean, he was studying in Alexandria, and for him not to refer to Origen, who said exactly that, is another indication he didn't know much about, you know, for all the important fathers of Alexandria, he didn't seem to have much knowledge of them. And uh, so he simply believed in the old Platonic doctrine of pre-existence of the soul. And the resurrection was an ineffable mystery. And interestingly enough, the easiest bridge to the resurrection for Platonists was the idea of the vehicle of the soul, which accompanied the soul. And even Origen's resurrection body is not just, you know, like... It's us again, and that's the way we want to be, and, and our whole body and soul together, though, they're spherical. Yeah, yeah, it's you know? spherical. That was actually anathematized by a later church council. They they, oh, they, yeah, they sure. loved Origen, but they didn't like the spherical uh No, they didn't go body. for that. But the thing is, Synesius doesn't even talk about that. And when he talks about the vehicle of the soul, which he does, he does not seem to 
He never openly says this is what the resurrection is or is pointing toward that as closer. He doesn't. He just, in fact, he talks about his theories of the vehicle of the soul in his book on dreams. And he he just talks about some technical things. It's It's a bit obscure and difficult, but... You know, that would be the most natural thing for him to go go to, and he doesn't. Hmm. So maybe he would have eventually, you know, like he didn't have, he could have continued thinking about these things, but he only had a couple of years as bishop, and then he was out fighting. Talk about he that. He fought on a, in North Africa. There were barbarians, and he had some help from a Roman officer, Olypius, but I guess Olypius left, and he was left, he was like a soldier bishop, and then he just disappeared, we don't know, around 413, so he never saw Hypatia get murdered or knew about it, for example, and uh, the letters he wrote were mostly about, you know, the Roman world is, is falling, and his children died and the barbarians are here and, you know, that kind of dramatic stuff. And there is an Easter sermon in which it's very syncretistic. It's It seems like uh, he's using hermetic texts or it sounds like it. I was actually chided for saying that when I was asked to Oxford in 2018 and I talked about Synesius and Hypatia and Theophilus and Cyril of Alexandria, another not very nice person mm. who attacked Julian, uh, as you might know. But um, a well-known patristic scholar said to me, what's a hermetic Easter, you know? And the church fathers were the ones who, who talked about the hermetica most and so on and, you know, it's like going around in circles. It doesn't matter what you say. It goes to this. I said it was something, it looks more like a hermetic celebration than a regular Christian Easter or a weird syncretistic Easter. There's some talk of the two testaments and the logos in, in both of them. Mm -hmm. But then there's all this hermetic neoplatonic language, like where you ascend not to logos, but to noose and other concepts and vocabulary that seems to be hermetic neoplatonic as much as anything else. So it's a kind of a strange Easter sermon. Yeah. Whoever the audience was, you know, I don't think too many of them probably had much of an idea what he was talking about. But anyway, you know, I didn't say it was a hermetic Easter I said it was an Easter ceremony that was very strange and seems almost more like as if. But, you know, that is this apologetic thing that won't quit. Right. Even though it's a 21st century. Well, if that matters, if that means anything at this point, who knows? <laughs> you know, so he had a few religious ideas and letters talking about the crisis, his personal crisis and the crisis on the borders <laughs> yeah so um that's the only thing we have after his letter about accepting the episcopate but on his terms and of course he also said he's going to say basically sounds like the republic he's going to tell a noble fiction 
you know, the Kalam Sidos of yeah. Plato's Republic to his congregation because they won't be able to take the reality of seeing the forms and the one and the, the direct light of the sun. So he, he'll mythicize in public that and philosophize in private. He, he pretty much spells out what he's going to do. That That's really and, interesting because he's, he's essentially spelling out in letters that he is an esoteric Hellene, right? He's saying, definitely, you know, I'm going to, we, we know what the times are like. The Hellenic world has fallen on hard times and we're going to go along with it as much as we have to in order to be able to, you know, continue to live basically and right. philosophize and stuff. So like that, you know, he can mix the imagery in his hymns later hymns with both Christian and pagan, so to speak. But the um, basic means of expression is now Christian. Yeah. And the Platonic, per se, goes underground. Of course, it continues in Byzantium in all kinds of complicated, interesting ways. Yeah, well... The, all the way until the 15th century. Yeah. I feel like he's, you know, the complicated and interesting ways maybe interestingly complicates our story of Synesius because he may well have approached this uh, barbarian philosophy, uh, Christianity, as something that, you know, if he's a reader like Porphyry, Porphyry hit, came out against Christianity, right? Okay, it's too late yes, for that now. Porphyry knew, the, Porphyry knew the Bible well. Yeah, yeah. And he, and Porphyry respects Moses as well. He respects the Jewish kind of tradition it can be read allegorically it can be read esoterically it has philosophical right. truths within it it seems to me not far-fetched to think synesius can do the same thing with christianity so he's talking about logos he's maybe like well they say logos we know they really mean noose you know something like that or, or whatever yeah. like he can he can find something worthwhile in this tradition and right. uh, work with that philosophically yeah, he basically realizes that this is what's happening. This is where the world is going. Mm. And uh, he's not a diehard. Right, right. He's willing to Which compromise. Of course, there were, but of course, remember in the East, the ones in Alexandria were driven underground and all, you know, the temples were destroyed. Remember when Synesius was in Alexandria or maybe a little bit after, the Serapium was destroyed. Yeah, this was in the 390s, I believe, right? Yeah. And also in Greece, uh, the Mysteries. Yeah. Eleusis was destroyed. That's all in Eunapius' works. Yeah. He talks about that. And um, so, of course, there were diehards, especially in Athens, who yeah. continued right into the 6th century, as you know. Especially the theurgic Neoplatonists, all of the Amblicus, but Synesius is more like Plotinus and Porphyry. He was never militantly anti-Christian anyway. I wonder how much that is the, to do with the, the just the general vibe at Alexandria, where it seems like Abrahamic faiths and Platonist philosophy had been rubbing shoulders for a really long time. Right. Fi from Philo, well, from before Philo, we have lost 
Jewish Hellenic authors from Alexandria whose names we know, but we don't have the right. words anymore. Then Philo, well, we have, and then right. Philo, Orig we have, well, Clement, Origen, and a, probably a host of others whose works don't survive as well. Right. All the Gnostics, right, are there. All the various people who, in retrospect, are many Hermetics. Gnostics are there. Yeah, the people who wrote the Hermetica, etc. Is all kind of happening in in and around Alexandria, and so I just think diehardism wouldn't flourish as well in a, in a place like that, um, either from the Christian side or from the many other sides. Everyone's kind of just getting on with it. Well, there was a lot. There was so much mixing up and mixing in. Yeah. Now, Jay. But there were the ideologues. Yeah. Especially on the Christian side. So Cyril. I mean, destroying, destroying the temples. Yeah. Killing Hypatia. Yes. Well, uh... What's his name? Uh, Cyril looked the other way. They say, "Yeah, seems seems to be true." What a what a Christian thing to do. One thing we can say on the, on the one hand, you have the diehards at Athens. Yeah, especially starting in the fourth century with yeah. the re revival of the Athenian school and the great Proclus. Uh, um, yeah, Proclus is the heir of a couple of generations before him. Hmm. And. There's also activity after him. Um, one thing that's interesting about Proclus, the difference in approach in, in many ways with Synesius, is, um, you know, Proclus kind of doesn't really mention Christianity very much. There's some stuff in his works you can find that you think, okay, it's a kind of, it's a little, you know, nudge against monks or something like that. But he's he's really just, as far as he's concerned, they're not he worth speaks mentioning. of the prevailing opinion. Yeah, stuff like that. That sort of thing, yeah. Um, while Synesius, from his works, maybe because we, we have so many letters by him, um, which we don't from Proclus, maybe that's why, but he, um, you get much more of a picture of the kind of cut and thrust of daily life. He's much less um, living in a world of metaphysics and... Um, you know, communication with the gods and this sort of thing. It's much more kind of like, the, you can learn a lot more about late antique history, let's say, from reading Synesius's letters than you can from reading Proclus's works. Right, and also his his works. He's very much a Hellenic man of letters, interested in paideia, education, rhetoric, the tradition of rhetoric. Right. Like Dio Chrysostom is his hero, and then how Dio converts from rhetoric to philosophy, whereas also uh, Christianity was just sort of nervously coming in. And by the time of Proclus, it was much more secure. Not completely, but relatively. Yeah. And... Proclus was just interested in his commentaries on Platonic dialogues, his own hymns, which have been compared to Synesius, by the way. Hmm. There's been some going way back to Willem Ovitz, who wrote a famous article on the hymns of Synesius and Proclus. Um, let's talk a little bit about the hymns of Synesius. They're kind of a wonderful um, piece of late antique spirituality, it seems to me. Yeah. Well, what he does in the hymns, he's a great metaphysical poet. And I think that's maybe the most significant thing about him. And there are nine hymns. The tenth was a forgery 
where he just talks in terms of being a very pious Christian and so on and so forth. But um, he takes traditional Greek poetry and meters, Doric lyric, and he adopts it to Neoplatonic themes. Basically, as far as him, it basically almost a kind of rundown of Plotinus' notion of procession and return to the one, procession out of, and also that being reflected in the human soul. Mm. He also has some ideas from the Chaldean oracles, which may have come from, well, some definitely came from the anonymous commentary on the Parmenides, which has been attributed to Porphyry. And some still do, and others say it's Gnostic. You've probably seen some of that. Well, we've we've even done a special episode on that very subject, and I didn't even pronounce it. I just said, there's all these opinions about this mysterious commentary. Here's what's in there. There's some triads. Boy, are there noetic triads. Uh, make mm-hmm. of it what you will. Well, as it turns out, the, the commentary of Addo, Pierre Addo, wrote a book on Marius Victorinus and Porphyry. Yep. And in it, he shows that horizontal procession, mm-hmm. the father, his power, his intellect, not the up down, but the horizontal, can be turned into the father and the Holy Spirit becomes the second and the logos or the intellect becomes the third person. And the only Christians who have that order are Marius Victorinus and Synesius. And of course, Synesius and Victorinus were close to contemporary, but couldn't have known each other even if they overlapped. So the common source seems to be the anonymous commentary. Or maybe the oracles without a medium of, you know, I mean, if these guys... You know, we know of a lot of Platonists who wrote commentaries on the Chaldean oracles, and like Iamblichus, that we don't have. But this is a commentary on the Parmenides. Right. No, but what I'm saying is particular structure, triadic structures of the noetic reality could have been coming from maybe from either the oracles themselves or from Platonist commentaries on the oracles, which are already interpreting them and integrating them into metaphysics. So you don't necessarily need... To postulate well, that either Synesius definitely knows some of the oracles. Yeah. He puts them in the poems. What impressed that though was the, the order of the three persons, so to speak, yeah. hypostases of the Trinity. Clearly, in the hymns, there are Chaldean structures, and he also mentions them in prose works. There's no question that he had knowledge of the oracles also. Now, I guess in in scholarship on Synesius, there's been a bit of a pushback against your take on him as as basically a Hellenist who's, you know, kind of going through the motions of being a Christian, making the best of it. And really, he's deeply invested in Platonist spirituality. Then there's been some pushback against that. But what what I wonder is, how hard can you push back? Because he's never mentioning the scriptural canon of Christianity, basically, but he's mentioning the Chaldean oracles, like citing them. (laughs) And that to me is a bit of a smoking gun. You know what I mean? Like if he's... Oh yeah. Well, you know, Hilary Armstrong, who took my side in all of this, 
he told me, he said, look, you know, you're basically right. The texts are on your side, he said. Right. <laughs> and Armstrong also pointed out, look, you know, what's more important is what it meant to become a Christian or be a Christian at that time. Sinesius said, did never said, therefore, I am not a Christian. Right. He said, on these conditions, I'll be a bishop. Yeah. You know, and and so on, as we've talked about. And then in the later hymns, there is some mixing of Christian and pagan imagery. But often you get, you know, Christ is a new Heracles, and he bears a mortal body, which is very Platonic and Orphic and Chaldean and all those things. And there's one point where there's ascension and resurrection, which in at that time were often combined. Mm-hmm. And Helios sees Christ and sees it as the source of his own being. In other words, the son of the intelligible world is the source of Helios. Helios sees him, you know, ascending or resurrecting. And, you know, those late hymns have all kinds of mixtures of the mythic Greek myth and Christian myth combined. And at that point... He might have been going in a direction of making maybe a little more of a synthesis. But as I said, we only have, uh, after that famous letter, those letters and that sermon, that Easter sermon, and then he disappears. So, Tragically young death for a, a great and fascinating intellectual. Same, same with Julian, you know. It seems right. Like it's easy. It was, he was only in his early 40s, it seems. Julian was 32 or 33. Hmm. After all, it was antiquity, those. <laughs> yeah. Well, late antiquity, like a very, I mean, I'd say it's important for us to remember the, the chaos that is going on in terms of, you know, if you live anywhere near the borders of the Roman Empire, things are unstable. There's rampaging giant groups of... Uh, Visigoths and Goths and right and there are all know. kinds of complications. Some came into the Roman Empire and joined it and became powerful. And um, you know, many of the barbarians did hit and run. So you know, well, yeah, it was an age of of upheaval. And also, the Roman state was not a very nice organization. No, they the late third century, pretty pretty much, much totalitarian. Yeah, and. Um, that actually, when earlier you mentioned that he's been sent to Constantinople to do some special pleading for his town vis-a-vis taxes and stuff like this, the context yeah. of that is that the entire empire is being taxed to the bone to feed this sort of military apparatus that is increasingly the only thing that's keeping the show running. But uh, oh, definitely. But it sucks if you're the taxpayers for that. So everyone is trying to get the emperor's ear and say, could, could my little group of towns not pay taxes, please? Right. And he, he did have, seem to have some success in that way. I feel like it would be great to t- discuss his work on dreams a little bit because it's, it's up there with um, Salustius's On the Gods in the World as one of the great kind of late antique little monographs, mini monographs on a subject that just gives us an insight into this really rich Platonist thought world, which involve gets into the sort of oogly boogly side of things. You've got 
visions and dreams and direct communication, like, you know, divinatory dreams that where the gods speak with humanity and stuff. Can you just tell us a little bit about his day in Somnis? Okay, well, this is, he speaks of keeping a dream book, keeping a record of one's dreams. And he talks about maybe some of the different types of dreams, like connected with the gods. And I guess the most important Part of that book is his discussion of the vehicle of the soul. And the idea is that dreams which are, I guess what we would call today certain types of lucid dreams, or maybe a Jungian would say archetypal dreams, are a result of the vehicle of the soul, the pneuma, which is some kind of spirit vehicle, ochema pneuma which when the soul descends into incarnation, accompanies it. Mm -hmm. And then when it ascends back through the cosmos, the vehicle of the soul goes a long way with it, at least to the eye there. Okay, but what it seems to do is connect our empirical sense experience with the Platonic Noetic realm. So, for example, the images, just like you have images of archetypes in Jungians, you have images of the forms which can come through this vehicle of the imagination, which is not fantasy. It's called fantasia, but it's not. Yeah. It's the image-making faculty which connects here below with there. And so it's a very, very significant uh, faculty. Right. It's basically the way, another way, to say, a royal road to the noetic rather than to the unconscious. Some people today would read it as to the unconscious. Yeah, but but that's because people today have this idea that, it seems to me, that by going inward, by by exploring ourselves, we're entering further and further into a subjective individual place thing space. Well, for a Platonist, it's, it's exactly the opposite. If we're looking outward at the world of sense perceptions and change, we're looking right. at this kind of subjective, nothing certain thing. If we go inward, we're getting closer and closer to the objective reality, the, the shared yeah, reality. Well. Of the universe, well, of, of, cre- of everything. A Jungian, a Jungian would say, you know, we are going in with to a collective. Yeah. Right? It's more, it's closer to obviously to Neoplatonism of depth psychologies, but. Um, Jung in his more, uh, in his more candid moments would, would go out on a limb and say, yeah, okay, we're talking about something not that dissimilar from uh, the Platonist idea about forms. But then. Right. He would often couch this in in physicalist terms, at least in his uh, published, you know, sort of during yeah, his sometimes or quasi physical. But he also talked, you know, these these are images, right? Remember the dream images, even if they're archetypal or not, the archetypes they're images, right? So it's the same thing with uh, the imagination. The fantasia makes possible perception of images of the forms. Right, um, so to speak. Proclus talks, the- talks about this in great detail in his uh, 
commentary on the first book of Euclid, actually. And he really talks about like the, the mechanics by which geometric forms, which are if, if there's forms of anything, there's forms of geometrical realities, right? Plato is one of the few places where Plato kind of says, okay, there's a form of triangle, you know, this sort of thing. But in their, right. in their form as forms, they're not extended. They're not lines, you know, as we imagine them or on a piece of paper as we draw them. They're incorporeal in realities. But in the fantasia, we project them onto this sort of right. like screen of the, of the pneuma <laughs> And they look like a triangle or a circle or whatever. Right. The mathematicals are mm -hmm. sort of the in-between things we can easily know about that are something like what we're talking about, images. Yeah. So it's basically on dreams, he's working on ultimately on a theory of the pneuma, the vehicle of the soul. But I don't think he ever quite clearly resolves his, you know, he's he seems like Porphyry, sometimes like Gamblicus, and he seems to say there's also Chaldean oracles involved with the soul becomes an image, or the vehicle becomes an image, and something about leaving behind the dregs of matter, but then ascends, but it seems only to go to the ether. Right. And then there's all this theoretical stuff where in Porphyry it just gets dispersed. But in Yamlicus, it never is destroyed. Yeah. And the Aether itself, you know, is like the vehicle of the soul of the universe. Right, yeah. So, it's, but, you know, the book leaves off there, so it's it's not as satisfying as it might have been. I, well, he's, he's given us a lot to think about and talk about, though, with this work. The mere yeah. fact that he decided to write that treatise, which is one of the most... In terms of trying to reconstruct late Platonist theory of the soul vehicle and the soul and how the soul interacts with the, the mm -hmm. cosmos and all this kind of stuff, it's, it's one of our most detailed treatises. And it, it goes into dreams and also kind of hermeneutics, like how interpretation works and this sort of thing, which is there's this that seems to me there's a real flourishing of, of really quite hip out their ideas about interpretation and how meaning is formed in in the very late platonists like um Seleucius and um Synesius. Yeah, well, and Proclus actually. Right. Well, Synesius is trying is working in that direction and he seems to have some problems. He wrote to Hypatia one of his last letters about he says he had a very original interpretation here and asked us some questions but it remains ambiguous and as i said also that would have been the natural place to talk about the resurrection and he doesn't yeah the resurrection body just it was a real problem for platonists you know right but the most but the easiest way around it if you had to do, do that would be the vehicle of the soul of course of course and and, and he doesn't he so doesn't that's another he really must not no. have he must not have known origin at all because origin you know in in the periarchon he says you know everyone criticizes the christians because um <laughs> they because they think we're materialists because this we're, we're always going on about pneuma and of course everyone every philosophically literate person in in antiquity knows pneuma they they think you know stoic ideas pneuma is something it's it's not exactly normal matter but it's 
a body. It's quasi-physical or something like that. Yeah. yeah, it's not incorporeal anyway. And Origin just makes the movie says, no, no, it is. It's incorporeal. Pneuma, like the spirit, is incorporeal. Mm-hmm. So he's rebranded it, essentially. That move yeah, well, allows you Origin to... was embarrassed. Origin was embarrassed by some Christian, if you took using the term literally right. in quotations, if you took Christian doctrine that way, it was a philosophical embarrassment. So he worked his way around it, and of course he got condemned. I don't think, right, I don't think Synesius knew him, but the thing is, you'd think he would have taken that tack given his idea of the resurrection as an effable mystery, mm. but he never did. Yeah. Maybe he would have later, but that's, we don't know. That's a really fascinating way of putting it, ineffable mystery, because normally when a late Platonist talks about an arreton musteria, they're talking about things like the nature of the one, right? Which is beyond being, and humans cannot grasp it. Um, to be To grasp it, you need to basically become it. You need to ascend to it, leave behind everything else so that you can just be with it in oneness. This is like Platinian participatory yeah, metaphysics. You get to the point where you just have to wait. Yeah. Like waiting for the rising sun. But um, it seems to me that it's always difficult to interpret what someone means when they say it's an ineffable mystery, right? But it, I, I wonder if Synesius, what he means by this. Does he mean... This is a way for me to say, I'm not even going to address this issue, right? So you could you could have a, a quite sort of nugatory. Yeah, he could have. Like, okay, okay. It's a mystery, you know. It's an ineffable mystery. Um, or he could be, in some way, let, let's read him as, you know, someone who's concerned with finding truth in Christianity. He's in, in a, at least in that mood when he writes that, he's he's in the mood to to look at this, what might seem absurd on the mm-hmm. face of it, uh, material, and find the deeper meaning, which we know is something Platonists love to do with cultural artifacts. Oh, sure. And he might be using that ineffable mystery as um, a very sincere, uh, like there must be something in this resurrection body idea. Right, Even though right, I can't get my right. head around it, it doesn't make sense to me. So I'm just going to leave, I'm going to, like there's a bit, maybe a bit of awe there so it's really hard to know what to make of that i think it's going to be a matter of scholarly judgment how you how you take that right well i mean he the only time he has the resurrection is in his the poem i guess the the ninth hymn or where there's that mm. helios thing i mentioned yeah where he sees christ rising and he realizes it's the source of his own reality yeah which is like calling it the good yeah. In the intelligible world, as, as the sun is in the visible. So uh, that's as, as close as he gets, and it's just poetic imagery. But when is, when is, how is any poetic imagery just poetic imagery in a metaphysical poet like Synesius? Well, it may imply something, but he never pins it down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he has it there. Hmm. And and it's still and it's Helios. It's not you know an angel or something. It's it's still the you sun know, Helios god. Helios sees the rising Christ, who's also the new Heracles. Yeah, that's pretty Hellenic, right? 
it still has a, a syncretistic taste to it. Well, Jay Bregman, thank you so much for introducing this uh, fascinating character. In looking back on late antiquity and trying to make sense of what's going on in Greco-Roman culture in, you know, the 4th, 5th century is uh, a task only equaled in difficulty by trying to make sense of Christianity itself. But it's a, it's a, a really tough one. And people like Synesius, people who luckily for us wrote a lot of stuff, luckily for us, they were just Christian enough that Christian scribes decided to copy their uh, works. <laughs> so they didn't get lost. Right. Provided Synesius is in the, in the corpus of the church fathers. Yeah. So we're... We're very fortunate to have him for that um, reason. And presumably that's why as well, like there's a kind of forged 10th hymn. Some enterprising scribe thought, you know, we got to like legitimize this guy a little bit more to justify keeping him in the canon. Let's kind of make a really yes. Christian one. And it was sort of a Byzantine Synesius who was just, he was a very nice fellow who was a bishop and he, he really liked to study philosophy a lot. Hmm. That's how they <laughs> characterized them. But uh, going forward for the history of Western esotericism, and especially in the East Roman world, which has been grievously understudied, right? There is this sometimes subterranean, sometimes less so, transmission of Platonist ideas oh, it, definitely. within orthodoxy within a very very in on the face of it very totalitarian orthodox system of thought that you're not allowed to think outside of but in reality there's these platonist ideas and i think people like synesius the reception of their work later on is one of the vectors by which these ideas uh, get transmitted from person to person oh yes definitely and synesius was well in fact a famous byzantine uh, sort of scholastic, Nikephorus Gregoros wrote a commentary on the On Dreams in the 14th century. So he continued to be of interest. And of course, in the West, he became very important because Ficino himself in Florence, Marsilio Ficino, wrote a commentary, I guess, on the On Dreams also. And those Renaissance Platonists who were very syncretistic, but did remain Catholic, yeah, have been called Sinesii. Really? Right. Oh, definitely. You know, Ficino was a Sinesius, and they're like Sinesii in reverse. Right, because they really are Christians, but they're kind of Hellenizing, and he's a Hellenist who's sort of yeah. Christianizing. Right, I see. Right, and they go, you know, the Hermetica became the major, a major interest yeah uh, and the medici had ficino translate the hermetica first and then he went on and translated all these neoplatonic works into latin mm. for example so that's the um that's the story that you know lovers of western esotericism are pretty familiar with but but the, they know about the hermes trismegistus but i think the name of synesius is very much less on people's radar so it's great to flesh out the history of the guy a little bit and what he wrote. And as we move forward in time through the Middle Ages, I really want to trace the reading of this guy. I mean, he's especially interesting in terms of Nachleben because he has this 
stamp of legitimacy. He's somehow going to be orthodox. You can read him as orthodox. He's a bishop, for God's sake, you know? Right. And so he can be the blessed Synesius. And then you've got the soul vehicle and prophetic dreams and all kinds of interesting stuff in the Christian fold. And these ideas are therefore available for people to play with. Right. And it, you know, by the time you get to the 15th century, you have Pleathon, who's already coming right back out, and I think was, unlike his Italian counterparts, I think he was a pagan, a Hellene. For sure. He was a neo-pagan. In, he was, if, if anyone was ever a neo-pagan, he was a neo-pagan. Right. Yeah. Definitely. And, and maybe a neo-Platonist. I, I don't really like the term neo-Platonist when applied to the, the late Platonists of, of antiquity. But uh, I think to someone like Pleithon, it is kind of appropriate to call him a neo-Platonist because just things have changed so much um, in the intervening years in terms of thought world, in terms of you know ways of thinking, science, technology, everything, that to, to revive Platonism for, for him in the 15th century is, is there's something very neo about it, you know? Right. Well, Lloyd Gerson didn't allow us to use the term neo-Platonism in the uh, Cambridge History that you saw. Yep. Cambridge History of Philosophy in Late Antiquity, two volumes. Definitely worth a read. It's a interesting collection. Well, it was an interesting time for philosophy. Jay Bregman, Definitely. you're the man. Thank you so much for speaking to us about Synesius. And uh, stay esoteric. Oh, you too. I enjoyed this very much. Good to see you.